You are listening to a podcast from Classic City Church. We're glad you've joined us. Our services are held at 10.30 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 595 Prince Avenue in the Piedmont Sanctuary. For more information, please visit www.classiccity.org. This is a sermon from Pastor Lee Mason. If you uh, have a Bible with you, turn to the book of Colossians. It's in the New Testament. The book of Colossians, almost toward the back of the Bible. Um, Whenever you're going through the the New Testament, you know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels. Then you have another historical book called the book of Acts. And then you have the writings of Paul, which are from the book of Romans, and it ends with what they call the pastoral epistles, Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and there's this one book called Philemon on the end of it. Those are all Paul's writings. And then you've got what they call just other writings. And then you've got the book of Revelation. So you always remember that. Gospels, Acts is another historical thing. Paul's writings, other writers, New Testament writers. And you have the book of Revelation. Kind of help you find your way around. This is Paul's section there, book of Colossians. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 1. Again, before I read this, let me just kind of reiterate Um, where we've been and what we've learned so far. Uh, Colossians was a church, uh, uh, actually a city that wasn't as large as some of the other cities that were, uh, had epistles written to them in the New Testament. Uh, It was, uh, the church was started in the mid-50s, more than likely mid to early 50s, by a guy named Epaphras, one of Paul's uh, disciples that he worked with and raised up in ministry. And Epaphras went there and started churches, several churches in that area. And the, the people of that area we would describe as being uh, animistic. And what I mean by that, their religious background is they believed spirits were in everything. Anything happened, it was because of a spirit, and spirits controlled the natural world. And they were, they were polytheistic, so there was multiple spirits, multiple causes and effects. And they were very much absorbed in their life with appeasing manipulating, placating these spirits. They did all kind of rituals, all kind of routines. They would have amulets and they would have, that they would wear. They would have sayings they would have. And, and the way they said words and the incantations was part of the way. There's all kind of elaborate things they would do to try to manipulate spirits and to make sure the spirits treated them well and not bad. And they were, their lives were somewhat absorbed with not offending these spirits and appealing to these spirits. And so that was, this is the world the gospel came into through Epaphras. And so there was a, there was, you know, Paul felt an urgency about seven, eight years later when he wrote this letter in 62, 60 to 62 AD, he's writing this letter just to really protect these young believers from sort of that error and that tendency in their culture and in their background, which was to combine religions, be pluralistic, um, and he basically is telling them, don't get into superstition, don't get into mixing of religions, you know, Christ alone, focus on him, stick with him. And that can be a challenge for us this day. You know, we can find ourselves mixing religions up. If you look at the history of the church, uh, for 300 years, the church was persecuted, it lay low, and it forged forward powerfully against the Roman Empire. And when Constantine declared Rome a Christian nation, basically said, it's fine to worship 
the, you know, the Christian God and to worship Christ, and he sanctioned it and authorized it. Uh, probably at that time, they estimate about 25% of the Roman Empire was already Christian. I mean, authentic, genuine Christian. I mean, Christians that became Christians knowing they could die for what they believed. Strong, strong presence there. And what happened is they were given money and they built churches and it became more of an established religion. It just spread real quickly. Uh, in a, in a, but it spread in a more uh, socially affirming way than it did in sort of a dynamic way that it had before. It wasn't going against the grain. And, they, and what began to happen is Christian, the Christian leaders began to see they could absorb all these other little pagan religions real easily. And what they did is they basically would sort of mix paganism with Christianity. We did this a lot in our holidays. I mean, the holiday Christmas, and I'm not against Christmas. I'm not that. I love Christmas. We're all in, we, we, we know, you've been in this church last month, we, we love Christmas here at Classic City. We put up Christmas trees. That's not a bad thing to me. But it really was a pagan holiday. Jesus probably was not born on December 25th. I, I would almost certainly bet the house Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. But that was a pagan holiday with the solstice, and they just basically made that the birth of Jesus. Easter, you know, very similar dynamics. And so what happened in time, Christianity began as it emerged, it, it became almost a pagan religion. As Catholicism's hold got in there, they basically were, uh, you know, the idea of transubstantiation, that the, the elements turn into the actual body and blood of Jesus, and if you don't eat them, you're not going to have grace. That was completely pagan folklore. That's not scripture. You know, a lot of the, the incantations with, with Mary, you know, the, the rosary beads, just in, incantations to a female, a divine female, very pagan. That's not Christianity at all. Mary was a, uh, a great woman. She's the mother of Jesus, but she was, a, she was sinful like you and I. And when Jesus was uh, preaching, she didn't, you know, she was not exactly all in on her son, if you read the Gospels. And uh, so you had, you had this stuff. And so what happened, and so the reason I say that, it is very easy, and we got to watch this sometimes in Christianity, as we want to be relevant and contemporary, and I'm, and I'm all for that. But you can, th there are points where your culture is not going to agree with what you and I believe. And, and you have to have guts, and you have to have a backbone to stand against your culture. You can't just take every element of your culture and just be hip and cool and, and, and just be good. It, what happens is you can make Christianity big and broad doing that. It will get bigger and it will get broader. It did 1,800 years ago in the Roman Empire. But it dilutes it. And it stops being Christian substantively. And that's what Paul is really concerned about here with these guys. And so what he does is, is he doesn't do a lot of critiquing. He, he, we'll see as he gets in there, he'll critique some of these folk religions a little bit. But the biggest thing he wants to do is tell this audience, this is the core thrust of what we believe. This is what Christianity is. This, and these are things you need to pay attention to. And so he's going to kind of really pay attention to really big major truths of the Christian faith. And he's going to tell them to sell out on these truths. 
be absorbed in them. Get into them, and that, that they'll have a tremendous effect on you. The first, first week, we looked at how the gospel's dynamic, how it is powerful around the world, and it's powerful within us. And he said, because of that, be filled with the knowledge of his will. Be absorbed in God's will. The next week, last week, we talked about who Jesus was. And Paul writes in absolute, unapologetic, undeniable terms and language, every kind of several illustrations piled upon piled to let you and I know Jesus Christ is God. He is the creator. And, and he, in monotheism, we understand that, you know, the, 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 there is one God, but he became human, an eternal, infinite, the eternal, infinite, immaterial God who created everything, and who thought everything up, and who, whose brilliance is the reason everything works together the way it is, became a human being in Jesus of Nazareth. And that human being was crucified on a cross. He felt real excruciating pain his blood was red as yours and mine it was spilled out it was God's sacred blood spilled out on a cross and through that sacrifice the Bible says we are able to be reconciled to God God and man were reconciled in the human being Jesus Christ and through that man God and man are reconciled to each other through his death and the Bible describes how reconciled we are. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but it's such an important thing in verse 22. He says that because of his death, you and I stand before him. And he describes how we look to God, how we stand before God in three different ways. He says, one, you are holy in his sight. You are without a blemish. And you're free from any accusation. Now, do you believe that about yourself today? Do you believe when God looks at you, he goes, you're holy. You don't have a blemish. There's not a flaw in you. Do you stand before God without, with free of any accusation, free of any charges, free of any offenses, free of any crimes? Can, do you know you stand before God that way. Do you know that that blood shed on a cross is that powerful and that magnificent? And it is that powerful and magnificent for you. Do you know that? It's very important to know that. And it will, it will change you and it will transform you to, to really get that set in. Um, there was, a, a again, I mentioned this last week and I'm kind of embarrassed about this but this is years ago my wife and I went to go see a movie called Shallow Howl I think I told y'all about this does anybody, does anybody remember this movie at all a few okay a few embarrassed people too okay it's a Jack Black movie I don't even like going to comedy movie I don't even know why we went but you know anyways uh we went and um it was really interesting he had, there was this girl that was very unappealing he had an encounter and suddenly he saw her as absolutely beautiful. And what was really interesting in the movie is this person who had all these flaws, all these blemishes, all this wrong with her appearance, was her sense of who she was was transformed because this guy saw her as beautiful. 
and treated her as beautiful and saw her as flawless and without a blemish and, and perfect. And something happens in your life when you realize God sees you holy and blameless, unblemished, without an act. It's just a powerful, powerful thing. I don't want to overemphasize this. There's two words that we theologians use to describe this. One is called the word uh, propitiation. It means to remove any judgment. Propitiation, if I wanted, to, if I, back in those days, if I thought a God was mad at me, I would offer a sacrifice, and that sacrifice would remove God's anger from me. Propitiation means to move, remove the wrath of God. It is removed. The other one is a word called expi, expiation, which means to remove the, the stain. That your sins are expiated. They are, the stains are removed. I can't tell you how important that is to know. Your stains are removed. And not because you came to church on a rainy Sunday, although I'm glad you did. And not because you're a good Christian guy or you got back. They're removed because Christ, when he died on the cross, it was God's blood. And that's what cleansed you. The blood of God makes you clean. And that's a, that's a powerful thought. So anyways, let's get into this passage here in, in Colossians 1. Let me ask you a question as we start into this. If I were to ask you, what is the single most important truth in Christianity in terms of you experiencing salvation? A lot, it's kind of hard to say what's the most important, but in terms of impact on your life, what truth do you need to know and know well? And don't holler out loud, but what do you think it is? What truth do you need? Think about for yourself. What is the truth I need to know and I need to know well that will create the greatest transformation in my life. What's the greatest truth? Let's look at this. Paul writes in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission given to me by God to present, you, present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to God's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Verse 28 says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works within me. Okay, so Paul's writing here, and he's writing to these guys. And let's just kind of scan through this passage a little bit, because I want us to kind of get some sense and go through this verse by verse. And then I kind of want to make, a, make one point to you. Verse 24, he says this. He's talking to these guys that are in Colossae. He's writing this letter from a jail. And he talks about his sufferings, and he says something kind of odd here. He says, I'm suffering for you in my flesh. And he says, I'm trying to make up for what's still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Now, it's kind of an interesting thing to read. And just a side note, there was a, 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 something that was very common in Jewish folklore, Hebrew folklore back then, called the Messianic sufferings, the Messianic afflictions. And what they believed is that before 
the Messiah's rule would come and be complete, there was a certain amount of suffering that was going to be experienced by his people before it came about. And I think Paul is, in most commentators believe Paul is just basically playing on this, that there is a Christ in his sufferings accomplished salvation. But as that plan for salvation for humanity gets unpacked, it gets unpacked by people who pay a price, who suffer, who lay down their lives for what they believe. Now, there's many ways that we might suffer as Christians. Now, again, in our country, we don't experience them as, as uh, vigorously and as violently as they do some places and other times in, in Christian history, but we do experience sufferings. I remember one time uh, there was a, a church of ours supported a uh, church in India, northern India, where they actually would get physically beaten for their faith. And uh, one of their, their uh, leaders was actually getting educated here in the States, and we're talking with him, and he said, you know, in, in northern India, we get, we, we like really physically suffer for our faith. Here, the suffering for the Christian faith, a lot of it's psychological. It's emotional. It's different. With, there's, there's different ways. And he says, sometimes I think it's harder here than it is there. So we, we do suffer for our faith. You know, when we make financial sacrifices, we're suffering for our faith. When we make time sacrifices, we're suffering for our faith. You know, in the book of Peter, it says that he who ceases from sin suffers in the flesh. You know, when you just stop living in sin, when you go against the grain, there's a, our culture sometimes will belittle Christians. They'll, they'll caricature, caricatures of Christians can make us very defensive and on our back heels. And there's all kinds of ways we suffer and we pay a price. Paul talks about he's suffering for his faith and he's suffering for their sake. He is really paying a price to see their, their faith and see the church become great. Look at Verse 25, he keeps on. He says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now, this word, if you read this chapter, chapter 1 of Colossians, and throughout the book of Colossians, he uses this word fullness a lot. The first week he talked about how he wanted you to be full of God's will. We talked about how that that word kind of had the connotation of packing wheat into a basket and just cramming it in there. And then there's a, you know, last week we talked about fullness in regard to Christ, the idea of having two cups and every drop of God being poured into Christ, every, all the contents being poured in. Now, when he talks about fullness here, it's somewhat in the connotation of a sundial. Everybody here owns a sundial, I'm sure. Let me tell you what sundials were, did back in the day. Sundials, of course, I remember learning this in third grade. Uh, many of you probably didn't have the good privilege of learning this in school, but, but we, uh, we learned about sundials. We actually did one out at Oglethorpe Elementary School, I remember. We had a sundial, and you, you could just tell time on, by the shadow and the stick. And one thing a sundial would tell you is that when the sun was at its absolute peak, and they, they called it sun, it's at its fullness, there would be no shadow, no shadow. I meant this. that meant it was at the, the sun was at its peak, at its brightest, at its zenith, at its fullness. This is the kind of the way he's using this word to describe this truth that he's going to unpack. The word of God in its fullness. If, if, if there's a lot of things in the Bible, a lot of truths, but he's saying this truth, in a sense, is 
a peak truth. It's, it's at its fullness. It's the sun at its peak. There's no shadow. There's just, it's, this, is, this is the fullness. Now it goes on here in verse 26. He says, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to God's people. So he's going to continue to sort of embellish this truth a little bit. It's God's word at its fullness. It's been hidden for ages. Now it's disclosed, and he talks about it being a mystery. Um, I remember when I was a little boy, and, and my mom you know, wanted me to be a, a good student. She wanted me to be really bright and do well. And so as a little kid, she bought me these magazines that were supposed to help. They were called Highlights Magazines. Do they still have Highlights Magazines? You guys are, oh, great. And you got into Georgia, which is not, shows it worked. It wasn't that hard for me. Um, well, highlight magazines, and I, I used to love, they did crossword puzzles, and they did, you know, connect the dots, and there was all these things you did with, with highlights. And but there was one thing in highlight I loved more than anything else. They used to have a, they would have a picture and in the picture would be hidden another picture. Anybody remember that from highlights? So you'd look at a picture, and you were supposed to keep looking at the picture until you saw the hidden picture. Anybody ever experienced that phenomenon in your life where you have a, you know, you're, you're looking and you go, just keep looking, and suddenly the old man looks like a young woman or, you know, whatever. There's always these, these kind of hidden things. And if you've ever done that, here's something that happens. At first, when you look, you can't. You just go, well, "Oh, see, he's an old man." And but as you keep looking, you kind of get something's a little agitating in the picture, and you keep noticing what's agitating, and suddenly it just comes out. And what's funny is once you see the young girl, you can no longer see the old man. A mystery hidden, a truth hidden. And Paul is saying that the, this God's word, the fullness, the most important, it, it's like a truth hidden. It's like a mystery like that. It's a mystery that you finally see it. And once you finally see a mystery, you can't see. If, if I remember watching a movie that was a, a famous movie called Usual Suspects. And uh, if you ever saw this movie, it's like uh, you know, the guys were in there, there, were, there was this crime scene and... There was this vicious man called Kaiser Sose. And this police is trying to find him. He's killing these people and he's interviewing this guy who's got, he's kind of lame and he's scared to death and he, you know, he just, whatever. And he's just telling this guy all about Kaiser Sose and you just get more and more scared of him and he's more and more mysterious. And then he lets the guy go and as he's walking down the street, you, they let you know that guy he was talking to was Kaiser Sose. And you freak out and go, oh, gosh. And then you look back on it and go, oh, yeah, you know, that's exactly. When you think about it, that's, that's what a mystery is. It's something hidden. But once you see it, once you discover it, everything becomes clear. And, and here's what can happen in our Christian lives. There can be an empowering truth that we just never see. We never see. And we just miss out. 
we just come up short. We just never experience its full worth. And he's talking about this mystery hidden. And then he goes on here in the next verse, verse 27. And he says to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Now look, look at what he said about this mystery. The word of God in its fullness, a mystery hidden, now revealed, glorious riches. And then he tells us at the end what it is. Verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How many of us here are aware Christ is in you? Christ in you. Now, what does he mean by that? Like the, the Jesus who lived 2,000, is he kind of running around in your soul? No, that's not necessarily what he means. There's a conversation that Jesus had with a religious leader in John chapter 3. His name was Nicodemus. And he was a guy who was with a group called the Pharisees. They had all the answers. They were theologically astute, moral. They were the, the guys. And Jesus didn't agree with them all the time. They had a lot of back and forth. And Jesus was working miracles. And Nicodemus comes to him at night because it wouldn't have been cool to do it during the day. And he basically gives up. He says, look, the, there is no doubt God is with you based on the miracles we see. There's no doubt. And then Jesus said something to him remarkable in John 3, 3. He said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, well, what do you mean be born again? And Jesus says, you know, you're born of water, which means natural birth. When a woman has a child, water comes out. That's, you're born of water. But she says, you must also be born of spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit has to bring you into the kingdom of God. Something supernatural needs to happen in you. And when Paul describes this, the indwelling of God, the life of God and the soul of man, the empowering presence of Christ within you. Something he covers all throughout the Bible. You know, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul makes this comment. He's talking about the Christian life, how it was a battle for him. That he was like going against a stream, but he wasn't going against a stream just rowing the boat. He had a motor attached to his boat, and he was just going against a stream, and he was delighting in it. And he said that, he talked about the power of Christ being in him, and he said this, we had this treasure in an earthen vessel, that the surpassing greatness of the power be of God, not of ourselves. What is it like to have a treasure in an earthen vessel. Back in those days when in the ancient areas, rich people would caravan around and they would carry pots, old clay pots. They'd fill them with gold coins to sort of show off their wealth. And he said, that's, that's, that's what we are as believers. We're a clay pot. Nothing special, nothing wonderful about us, but what is within us is treasure. And he describes that treasure, the surpassing greatness of God's power. Within us, within us. Romans chapter 8, Paul had finished in Romans chapter 7, talking about how we all struggle with sin sometimes. You ever notice that? It can be a battle, it can be a struggle. And he got to chapter 8 and he said something. He said, you know what, your body, you know, we know that culture can be downstream. Sometimes your own body can be downstream spiritually. You ever notice that? Am I the only one? 
you get temptations, you're like, oh, you know. He says, look, how are you going to float upstream in your own body? He says, you know what? The spirit of Christ lives in you. He says, your body is dead, but your spirit is alive. The spirit of Christ lives in you. He says, if the Holy Spirit lives in you, he'll actually give life to your mortal body. You win those battles. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I, but Christ lives in me. 1 John chapter 4, the writer of John says, Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, that by his precious and magnificent promises, you and I might partake and take on the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 prayed that the Holy Spirit would energize your inner man with power that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith. You know, usually when you ask people, what's the most important truth in the Bible? The most important truth to us is God getting me out of hell and into heaven. And that's a very important truth. And I don't want to put that down. But I want to tell you this. I think there's something more to Jesus coming to the earth than to getting you and I out of hell and into heaven. I believe it's primarily about this. It is about not God getting you and I out of hell and into heaven as much as getting God out of heaven and into you. That's why Jesus came, to get God out of heaven and into you. And here's the thing he's telling, he's telling, and he goes on here. Look at what he says in verse 28. We proclaim him. We proclaim him, 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 him. We have got to start proclaiming him. Christians are more identified by conservative political values, and now Christians are identified by liberal social values. We're identified by this and by that. We need to be identified by him. We proclaim him, 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 admonishing everybody and teaching everybody with all wisdom that you might be, and again, there's that word, full in Christ. You might become mature. You know, Jesus once said the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed. You could think of an acorn that gets planted, goes into the dirt, and it, gets, it, it grows and it comes alive and it becomes a, a powerful, mighty tree. When a seed is complete, it's, it's no longer a little seed or a seedling. It becomes a powerful, mighty tree. And what Paul is saying, I am I'm proclaiming him. I'm admonishing and I'm teaching with all the wisdom I have that you might be complete, that the seed of Christ in you might grow strong, full, sturdy, be transformative, take our vulnerabilities and make them strength, take our fears and make them faith, take our anger and our bitterness and our shallow parts of our life and fill them with love and peace. That is what he wants to do. And Paul's saying, tap into this. See this mystery. See through everything else. See the, the hidden mystery in there. And, and when you see it, you can see nothing else. Let that be your experience. Look at how he ends up closing this thing out, verse 29. 
To this end, I strenuously contend with all his energy that so powerfully works within me. Wow. What would that be like? Contending, fighting, living, going for it with all his power energizing you. What an incredible thing for a human being to be able to experience that. God in Christ dwelling in them powerfully, energizing them. And these fights we face spiritually with ourselves, in our culture, with whatever, God's energizing powerfully within us. That is, uh, that is the greatest fullness truth you can get down in your life. Christ in you. It's the word of God that's fullness. It's a rich, glorious truth. Hidden for ages. Christ in you. God did not send Jesus just to get you out of hell and into heaven. God sent Jesus to get God out of heaven and into you. What a powerful truth. What a powerful truth. Let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, we, um, this is such an incredible, credible truth. I know it's in my life has been so transformative, and I just pray that you would come and you would give us eyes to see it, not to just sort of, oh, that's good, but to really, what I pray for us, that we would really believe our lives can be different. We can be different. That the fears, the, the temptations, the vulnerabilities, the, the, the weaknesses that have just been bred into our soul can really be repaired and strengthened and turned completely around by your indwelling presence. Father, give us grace to believe in that. To believe in him and cleave to him and connect to him. And be like a seed that grows into a, a powerful uh, tree. It's mighty and strong and firm. I just pray that you would unpack all the potential that's in us for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Classic City Church. We hope that together we can honor the greatness of Jesus by growing spiritually, living authentically, and participating in his purposes. For more information or more sermons from Classic City Church, please visit www.classiccity.org.